I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. delighted to say that the judge's choice is Chenomalis speciosa contorta, which has been raised by David Ford. Last week at the RHS Hampton Court Palace Garden Festival, Chenomalis speciosa contorta, a scarce Japanese quince cultivar with tortured twisted branches, won Threatened Plant of the Year. And Threatened Plant of the Year is an annual competition hosted by Plant Heritage, and it's all about bringing recognition to rare and sometimes unfashionable garden plants. So we started this competition about four years ago. That's Vicky Cook, Conservation Manager at Plant Heritage. Because we realised that there were loads of really fantastic cultivars out there that had dropped out of nursery catalogues and were in danger of being lost completely, because if nurseries aren't selling them, they'll just dwindle out of gardens and we might lose them entirely. So this was to really celebrate some of those fantastic plants that our collection holders and plant guardians know all about, but that don't get a wider audience. Plant heritage began in the 1970s in recognition of the sad truth that we were losing garden plants. Through changing fashions and the aftermath of world wars and changes to the nursery trades, some cultivars were just slipping through the cracks. And this brings me to the theme of today's show. We're trying to refashion the unfashionable. We'll be exploring a few of our cultivated genera and species that for a variety of reasons have just gone out of style. They're plants that need perhaps a little bit of extra love. Coming up, plantsman, renowned broadcaster and all-round horticultural legend Roy Lancaster will be telling us about his most cherished Cuba varieties. Then we're heading to Wisley, where curator Matthew Pottage will be making the case for growing Parthenocissus, which is a group of often maligned climbers that include retro classics like the Virginia Creeper. And finally, we're taking a trip down memory lane. Author Naomi Slade will be sharing the history of Lilac's bumpy ride in the popularity stakes. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. The theme for today's show came from James Armitage, the RHS botanist and editor of both the Plant Review and the Orchid Review. It's no secret that he's a plant lover and that he spends a lot of time researching and thinking about some of our rarer garden plants. I spoke to James to get a deeper sense of why trends change and what we should do about it. So James, it seems a bit of a funny idea to dedicate an episode to unfashionable plants. What's the appeal? Do you know, the older I get, the less time I have for plant snobbery 
I just can't bear it anymore. When I, when I was a younger man and I first got into plants, I had all sorts of phobias, like variegated plants, hybrid tea, roses, bedding plants. And now I just, I just don't. I have tried to clear my mind of all preconception and accept that plants have their, their place, all plants have their place, whether it's in nature and gardens and, you know, however we use them they can all be employed gamefully for something. So that's why really, because I just think there's, there's so many uh, prejudices against very valuable plants and we need to challenge that. But what would sort of constitute an unfashionable plant for you? And, you know, how fast do these fashions change? Well, well they, they can change very fast. I mean, I, I was giving some thought to this business of unfashionable plants and I, I decided it was plants that had accrued a kind of suite of unpalatable associations. So it might be tweeness, it might be, um, you know, rigidity of thought or a lack of imagination or over tidiness or, or some kind of suite of unpleasant connotations. And once they get attached to a plant, it's difficult to shake them from your, from your mind. And that's, that's why we need to look afresh at these things. To me, it's almost like a case of each generation kind of rebels against the tastes of their forebears so for example I remember when I was growing up as I started to be aware of what was fashionable in gardening that was in the late 90s when it was all architectural plants and Ikea was telling everyone to chuck out their chintz and you know anything with a whiff of kind of cottage garden was just so old-fashioned and old hat. Well I, I think there's a real sense of surfeit around unfashionable plants so it's like after Christmas, you cannot bear the idea of turkey ever again. And I think it's the same thing with sort of conifer gardens and heather gardens. People are just like had them to the back teeth and couldn't stand to the side of another conifer. And, and so you need to reinvent these things to sort of reinvigorate them with the new energy. And then you can start to say, oh, I, I could just about eat turkey curry if I couldn't face a roast dinner, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. You touch on an interesting point there. It's like familiarity breeding contempt. And I feel like quite often plants become familiar because they're used a lot because they perform really well and then they become unfashionable. So we don't use them. So we're almost at risk of losing really good garden plants. Yeah, it's a a huge risk, actually. And especially with things that perhaps don't have a great longevity. So woody plants, you often find, can be found somewhere in some lost, forgotten corner of a, of a garden. Yeah. Lurking in some collection. Lurking in some collection. But those, those annuals and more ephemeral bedding plants and so on, if we just all decide one year that we've had enough of those, we run the risk of losing these plants unless some benevolent soul decides to go against the tide of opinion and uh, continue to grow these things. Why does it matter if we lose, you know, a few dozen violas here or, you know, a couple of box cultivars if box goes out of fashion? Well, it's all about the genetic availability, isn't it? It's all about a gene pool. Once something takes its unique genetic combinations away because it dies out, it's very difficult to get them back. And so the plants of the future rely on the plants of the the present is one reason. But another is that these things are more than just living things. They're also cultural products. They're artefacts of, of a time and of a place. And so just as you would wish to conserve 
you know, any other artifact, any other manufactured thing of a people and a time. So it is with plants. They're the monuments to, to effort of people past, and we should try and, try and preserve them for the future. So, like James, let's try and clear our minds of all plant preconceptions and we're going to head down south to the beautiful garden of Roy Lancaster. He's collected thousands of rare plants, but some of his most treasured are the different varieties of Akubas that he's accumulated over the years. Now, Akubas, you probably know them, sadly, as supermarket plants. These are tough, evergreen plants with quite distinctive glossy leaves and they're common in places like car parks and other municipal planting areas and that's for a good reason but I'll leave that to Roy to explain why. Well I remember my times as a youngster in Bolton in Lancashire and this would have been in the 1940s and 50s and it's probably one of the first evergreens I ever came across not that I sort of took a particular interest in it but they were everywhere, commonly planted, still are, in gardens, especially in industrial areas and towns, simply because they, they can put up with an enormous amount of, uh, of conditions, uh, both soil conditions and climatic ones. And it seems that he was a plant that had everything in a way. I think the first Japanese cultivar, a spotted one it was, called variegata, Orcuba japonica variegata was introduced in the late 18th century by a Swedish botanist called Thunberg. And, and that is supposedly still with us in our gardens, though there are so many lookalikes, it's hard to be sure that it's the, the original. But it was the start of this, it, yes, it was the fashion to English audiences, certainly, European audience as well. This was something different. A shrub, evergreen, with large leaves, handsome leaves. And so he was a, a plant which seemed perfectly hardy and suited for all British conditions, both in cities and towns as well as in country gardens. Handsome, polished green leaves. And as time went by and more of these different varieties were being introduced from Japan initially, a whole range of leaves with spots and speckles, golden, sometimes creamy. And on the female plants, wonderful red fruits as well. And so it was all the rage. People wanted to buy into this. They wanted to grow this wonderful evergreen. But as time went by, because it was so easy to grow and it seemed to be happy in most conditions and it liked shade, not surprisingly, it was a woodland shrub in the wild. So, yeah, well, let's stick it under, under those trees. And our parks, especially in Bolton at the time, were filled with orcubas and similar evergreens that put up with, let's face it, in some instances, really poor conditions. Uh, soil which became hard, or positions which were very shady, where a few other things would grow there, but they, the dear old gold cube would always put up with it. And when you get a plant that it's quite happy seem to, wherever you put it, you can take it for granted. And then taking it for granted, you begin to lose interest in it. It's, it's, there's no challenge in growing such a plant. So that was the fate of all cubas. 
But if you take them out of these situations and you give them some decent soil, they love shade, but they will grow in sun. They don't like wet soils, poorly drained soils, but a reasonable soil that's reasonably well drained, whether it's on alkaline or on acidic soil, it's, it's quite happy, but give it a place. Rather than pushing it in the background and making it a background shrub, which it commonly was, just give it a chance to shine and show what it can do. And so that's my feeling about them. And over many, many years, and having seen them in the wild as well, I've come to regard them as some of our most important and ornamental evergreens. And they never seem to let you down. Gokuba japonica is, as the name suggests, um, comes from Japan, mainly. And why it's so common in gardens is that I can only describe Gokuba japonica in particular as having a protean nature, ever-changing. It produces so many sports, so many variations, and has done through time, through centuries. All these different varieties were known and regarded by the Japanese as different and special and cultivated by the Japanese. And if you go there today, there are nurseries, some of whom grow nothing else but orchubas, japonica variations. Now, there are other orchubas that are found in Himalaya, and especially in China and in North Vietnam. And so you get an orchuba chinensis, but my, my favorite orchuba has to be one that I collected as a seedling originally on a, a famous mountain in China, in Sichuan, called uh, Yimishan, or Mount Omi. And this is a treasure trove of a mountain for plants of all kinds, but it has several different orchubas growing there, and one of them is Orchuba omiensis. Now, let me introduce you to Orchuba omiensis. As you can see, this is it's quite a handsome plant, and it, it differs immediately from Orchuba japonica in its foliage, apart from its vigor and its ultimate size. And this has got to be now, it's getting up for 18 feet at least now. But the leaves, unlike those thin, smooth, shiny japonica leaves, which is the character of all the japonicas, this one, it has kind of apple green leaves, which are large and leathery. And some of these, they're almost 20 centimeters long, if not. And they're thick and leathery and got these bold teeth on either side. And then you turn them over and they're palest of pale green, almost a creamy green. Really contrast in the color there as you turn them over. But it's that thick. You can, you can actually just flapping them together. It's like clapping hands. So that's a, a distinct characteristic of this particular plant. So this was planted in maybe 1983. 
And as you can see now, all these years later, it just, whether you stand close up to it or far back, it stands out. It's a plant that you gasp to see, a plant that uh, says, I am different. You know, it's proud of being this plant. I wouldn't want to have a garden that didn't possess an acuba. We're so lucky now because there are so many different acubas in terms of size, as well as leaf, shape, colour, and, yeah, fruiting and, and not fruiting. They're easy of cultivation, but th that should not be an excuse to just stick them in anywhere. I have to say, going up the the road outside here, there was a, a, a wonderful big Orcuba japonica golden king, which is fairly common in garden centres at the moment. And during the lockdown, I used to walk past it uh, several times a week on my way up to the shops. I admired this plant, it but six feet high, almost as much through. And it was at the end of a, of a hedge by a garden gate. And then last year, I was walking past and I couldn't see it. And then I realised that someone had moved into this house and they'd actually cut it and trimmed it to be part of the hedge. It was a private hedge and they'd made this part of it. And that plant is like a square box and its leaves had all been severed. And I felt really sad for that plant. Golden King had been trimmed to fit in with a hedge, a line of hedging. And I think that was not right. So enjoy having an Orcuba and make sure that it's an Orcuba that will fit into a space which you can fill. You don't get crammed in and enjoy that plant for years to come. I really share Roy's enthusiasm for this much maligned group of plants. For example, one acuba that I've grown in the past and put into gardens that I've designed is one called Crotonifolia. They're a kind of a mid-green and they're speckled with these beautiful kind of dots of gold. It doesn't look real, it almost looks a bit like a house plant. There's another one called Rosani, which is really common. Again, it almost looks fake. It's so perfect, you know. These things don't get many pests and diseases. They have these brilliant shiny leaves and bright red berries. It's such a cool thing. I mean, if you want to go more classy, there's one called Salicifolia, which you can find fairly easily online. And it's, it's a bit more refined looking. It's not variegated. So if you want something, in inverted commas, a bit more classy, then try, try Salicifolia. And as Roy mentioned, many Okuba varieties aren't exactly rare, but they're unfashionable not because people don't grow them, but because they're everywhere. They're ignored or shunned because of their ubiquity. And while that's one way that plants can become unfashionable, it's obviously not the only way. Another is that people fear growing the plant, that for one reason or another they see it as undesirable or intrusive before giving it a chance. A really good example of this is the Virginia creeper, or Parthenocissus. However, Wisley curator Matthew Pottage has a particular soft spot for the genus and is here to defend the honour of these tendril climbers. Virginia creepers, I think, would not be alien to many gardeners. I think most people would think, yes, I know that. I know what it is and I know why I don't want it or I know what it's about. 
which I think is a bit of a, an unfair situation for that plant to find itself. So when it's happy, it's a very vigorous plant. And generally, it's a straight species either, and here we go, I hope you're sitting down for this, so either Parthenocissus tricuspidata or Parthenocissus quinquefolia. So they're the two species that you see most. And tricuspidata, tri meaning three, has this, these three-pronged, quite big palmate leaves. Quinquefolia is more like a starfish, a little bit more umbrella-like. They're both nice in their own right, and they both have amazing autumn color, but there's many different cultivars within that and another species actually, which I want to tell you about today. But yeah, they are vigorous. And I think if people have got an old plant that they're trying to remove off a house or remove off a wall, it's quite a mission because they are self-clinging. Unlike ivy, which sticks with adventitious roots, which come out the stem and then root to a wall, this has little sucker pads and they stick. So, you know, they're not the easiest thing to take off a wall. So if people have had a bad experience with them, often when I say, we're the national collection holders of them, they kind of have a bit of a glazed look about them, roll their eyes and think, oh goodness, I don't want to talk about these. I didn't really realise there was many cultivars, and there aren't, you know, there's not hundreds of cultivars, but I didn't really realise there was much diversity within them at all. And I grew up in a house which had just a straight species, the Parthenosis tricuspidata on the wall of the house. Yes, it coloured up nicely. Yes, it was always in the gutters. Every year was up on a ladder taking out the gutter. So, you know, I didn't hate it desperately. I still thought it was an interesting plant, but I guess it didn't really blow me away too much. And then when I came to Wisley as a student many years ago, there was a cultivar called Fenway Park, which has a pure gold leaf. It's very, very striking when it leaves up. And it's not as vigorous at all. In fact, if anything, it's a bit of a mission to get it to grow. So that kind of took my attention. And then I don't think anything really more became of it till I actually had a trip to the US. And then I saw another couple of cultivars. And there's one called Lowei, which almost is a a little bit like a parsley leaf. It's got like a you know, fern-like tip to it. It's a smaller leaf and it doesn't go bright crimson. It goes more of like a peachy orange. And that's really sweet. And then I thought, oh, you need to look into these a bit more. Maybe there are some cool cultivars. And then I ended up, I actually, the next thing I actually came across with Parthenocissus was from Plant Heritage. And it was on their list of missing genera. So basically no one held that collection they're deemed as vulnerable because there's nobody, you know, protecting that group of cultivars. So I thought, oh, I wonder if, you know, we've got quite a few walls, quite a few buildings at Wisley. I wonder if this is something I could start to develop. And then that crazy collector syndrome comes in that so many gardeners have, me included. And then you see one and then you hear of another one. And then you, you know, when you tune into something, then you pick up on it all the time. So bit by bit, I started to collect them here and I just think they're fascinating. They're really, really interesting. It's a, a relatively small collection, you know, and off the top of my head is around 20, I think. But there are interests for summer foliage, different growth habits, and, and one of them is also really, really profuse in its fruiting. So there are different moments throughout the year. And a few of the, the other species to mention here, because I mentioned the other two that people see a lot, but there's another species called Henriana, Parthenocissus Henriana, that has a much darker leaf. It almost looks marbled. It has a, a white veination. So the veins are quite a whitey color. It's not very vigorous, 
and it's not the best to stick actually it's the one if there's any one of them that goes up and then falls off the wall it's that one so you can actually use it to great effect trailing over the uh, a raised bank a raised bed or have it somewhere you know where it can just drape itself and then one that i think would be probably have the most wide appeal because it doesn't have any attributes that are too shocking with its foliage is one called kirigami, which has a fern-like leaf and it has lovely serrated edges to the leaves. It looks like someone's taken a little pair of scissors and, you know, cut along the edges to get a, a serrated margin. So the leaves are quite narrow and fine. The autumn colour is exceptional, a really good clear crimson on it and it fruits really heavily as well. Masses of fruits, like little bunches of grapes. They have a lovely bloom to them, they start a bluish colour and they eventually go black and it's always colouring up its fruit when it's in autumn leaf colour. So absolutely gorgeous. And the other thing you can do with them, which we've done with Kirigami, is, is use them as ground cover. Obviously they don't cover the ground in winter because they're deciduous, but this just runs along a bank and wanders through other plants. And again, not massively vigorous. So if people in their mind think these are things that take over the whole flipping house in about two years, you know, it's not the case with all the cultivars. Some of them are much more delicate and slower growing. So obviously in the wild, you know, they're not going to be going up houses and trellises. So generally they will go up trees and they are lovely when they go up a tree because they will go along branches and then when there's nowhere else to go, they will just hang down almost like curtains from the branches. So if, you know, if people really don't want to be chasing them out of the gutters, growing them up a tree is, is a brilliant thing. It doesn't have all the weight and all the extra bulk that something like a climbing rose does. So yeah, it's a very low maintenance way of having one if you're just gonna run it up a tree because you kind of don't need to do anything. So Parthenocissus or Virginia creeper, they're hardy, they're easy to grow, and they can bring something, I think, to most spaces. That was Matthew Pottage. If you're considering growing Parthenocissus, I'd highly recommend coming to Wisley to see the RHS's National Plant Collection. It's a great way to kind of get a feel for what they can do. I would maybe come in late autumn, sort of October time, because that's when they really begin to colour up as the nights get cooler. And you get these amazing like sheets of colour when they all turn red. It's just a real spectacle. And I think, you know, seeing these things in person just gives you such a good sense of how the plant would fit into your garden. You know, it's better than any photo. And now for our final story of the day, we're turning to a flower that's underrated in my opinion, the lilac. It's a flower that everyone knows, but that many neglect. And it's seen as perhaps a bit old timey or maybe a bit out of date. So here to share her hopes for a lilac revival and let us in on their oscillating history over the past few hundred years is writer and gardener Naomi Slade. I think that lilacs are a flower of then rather than a flower of now because they're a plant that everybody knows about and they may very well have one in their garden, but they probably didn't put it there themselves. It's a plant that has the qualities of nostalgia. One's grandparents grew them, one's parents grew them. There was a, one on the way to school. So they send people back in time with their, with their looks and their fragrance. But they have fallen out of fashion, particularly in the UK. I think perhaps because they're actually too familiar. They are there, they're lilacs, they're reliable, they're hardy, they flower every year. They don't require any thinking about. 
and because they're undemanding, we don't do anything about them. So where we had collections in the UK, there was one at Kew, there were various dotted around the place. Actually, there's now only one lilac collection in the UK, in Golden Acre Park in Leeds, which fortunately is undergoing restoration and is receiving a bit of love now. So hopefully lilac's going to be having a revival. Lilacs are found extensively in Asia and also in Eastern Europe. And it's said that they came into cultivation by being brought back from the Sultan's court by the famous botanizing ambassador, who was Ogier Gelan Count de Buzbek, who in 1562 came back from essentially Turkey with a great hoard of plants. He had lilies, he had all sorts of things, and he had lilacs, which arrived in cultivation as lilac with a K, which is apparently Persian for bluish, although it was also known as a Turkish Ahola or Turkish Ahollander, which is a Turkish elderberry. And he came back to Austria and then he, a little while later, moved to France. And it's said that he took this little sprout of lilac with him when he went to France. And the French seized upon it as a marvellous thing and started breeding. So the lilacs were very, very warmly received. And they soon moved from France into Holland, into, into Britain and across to America. Now, in France particularly, there was a family called the Lemoines. And, uh, Victor and Marie Lemoyne started off the lilac breeding programmes with Syringa vulgaris. They had a, an interesting double form and they hatched a plan where they would take the pollen from this double lilac and Marie, because she was younger than Victor and had smaller hands, was sent up to a ladder to, to pollinate the, the single lilac flowers to, to create a whole series of doubles. And then... They bred them and they bred them and they bred them. And over a period of about 80 years, they introduced over 214 cultivars. And you have to think about when it comes to fashion, the effect that breeding and essentially the marketing spend has on the enthusiasm for a plant in a country, where there are lots of lilac breeders and the same goes for hydrangeas. People are far more into them because they're being pushed out to the retail, the retail side of things. So hydrangeas are massive in France and massive in America because that's where they were breeding them and getting excited about them and selling them to the populations. During the 20th century particularly, lilacs became less and less fashionable as ever the sort of periods of the First and Second World War didn't help. But eventually the French breeders, the Lemoines, they shut up shop. And lilacs, they used to be, they used to be, songs about them. There's a elegant poem in America called When When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed. And there's this barrel organ song by Alfred Noyes, Come Down to Kew in Lilac Time, in Lilac Time, it isn't far from London. So there must have been lots of lilacs around then. It's the flower of New Hampshire, the Greenwich state, and it's also a symbol of victory and sort of nationality in, in Russia. But in the UK, and to a certain degree elsewhere, the lilacs became less fashionable. And I think because, because they're easy to grow and they don't demand attention, perhaps they were not receiving that marketing spend, or there were lots of other things that people got into. I mean, as a nation, the British are very into bulbs and they're very into herbaceous. But also, the 
rise of prairie planting and grasses, which has been ongoing now for about 25, 30 years, has taken our focus away from shrubs, shrubs like lilacs and hydrangeas and that sort of thing. And it's only recently with big breeding programmes, again in America, in Russia, but you have to think about the Asian input as well. So these big driving forwards for more compact varieties. Lilacs traditionally only bloom once, so people want to get reblooming lilacs, which will have flushes of flower throughout the summer. Things like autumn colour. So making the lilac a more rounded garden plant, something that's a little bit more useful and plays its role throughout the year to a greater extent, together with Instagram, of course. But anything that will photograph well and look fabulous on Instagram immediately sees a boost. So quite a lot of the plants that have fallen out of fashion turns out they photograph well on an iPhone. So they have a sharp U-turn and become popular again. I think people should grow more lilacs. I think the colours are great. They're lovely soft purples, they're great blues. They're hardy. They will take any amount of cold and they actually like poor dry soil. So pick a lilac you like and go and experiment. Thanks there to Naomi. If you'd like more information on lilacs, then do check out her book on the subject, her monograph. We've included a link to it in the show notes. And in addition, if you love deep dives into the bizarre, brilliant, beautiful plants we grow in our gardens, the plant review is calling your name. We've included a link in the show notes with details on how you can subscribe to our botanical quarterly magazine. Well, that's about it for today. But before you go, a quick announcement. We're planning an allotment special for later in the summer, and we need your help. If you'd like us to come and visit your allotment and give you personalised grow-your-own advice, or if you have a particular story you'd like to share about your allotment, maybe a story about how it's evolved over time, what it's meant to have one, or about something curious that you've grown, then please reach out. Email us at podcast at rhs.org.uk. That's podcast at rhs.org.uk. And also, just a heads up, that next week's show featuring the best of RHS Flower Show Tatton Park is going to be coming out a day late on Friday the 21st. But that's all for now. So for me, Gareth Richards, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. 
Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.